other. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. Why, thank you. I feel welcome now. It's good to have you in-house. Uh, today we're going to actually pick up and run forward with this series out of the book of Titus. Two weeks ago, we kind of did an overview, kind of gave some background, all that good stuff to help kind of give us a mental place to use and understand the material in this book. But today we're actually going to jump in and start looking at this, this book kind of verse by verse. And so what we have in the book of Titus is, is basically Paul writing to his young protege Titus with this. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. Or if you would, Titus, your mission, and you cannot refuse it, is to go all over the island of Crete and install qualified leadership in each of the churches, equipping the new believers to live out godly lives of good works in a pagan, godless culture. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about just how impossible this mission is that Paul gave to Titus. Because Paul reminded Titus of the kinds of people he was going to be working with. He said one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are what? They're what? The word always means habitually. These people have a habitual practice of lying. And so in a very real way, the word Cretan came to be synonymous in the Greek language with to lie. And when somebody would say, yeah, he's from Crete. It was basically saying, don't trust him. He's not a person of integrity because he doesn't know how to tell the truth. And so this was their national character. They were known as liars. Hey, Titus, set that in order, would you? <laughs> Thanks, Paul. I'll do that too. And he goes, they're also evil beasts. That means they don't know how to get along with each other. You know, they're rude, they're crude, they're mean. They just kind of tear each other apart like they're a bunch of animals. How many of you have dogs? Yes, oh, we have a lot of dog owners in the house. When dogs don't like other dogs, what do they do? Arr, snap, crack, rip, fur flying, and people yelping. Yeah, that's these people. They don't know how to get together. They don't know how to get along with each other. And by the way, they're lazy gluttons. Now, if somebody ever called you a lazy glutton, how would you feel? Yeah, that's like a really rude statement. <laughs> but what he is saying is this. These people live to satisfy their physical appetites. They're all about just doing what feels good for themselves. Hey, Titus, fix this, man. Go around the island of Crete, establish qualified leaders, and see that these people become godly followers of Jesus Christ so they can witness before their neighbors who Jesus Christ really is, i.e., mission impossible. This is really tough stuff. Now, the good thing is that Paul did give him some resources, and one of the resources he gave him was the Word of God. It is proclaiming the message of the gospel of God's grace by teaching sound doctrine and by doing strong correction, you are to help these people live in a way that honors Jesus Christ. So today, with all of that weighing on the shoulders of young Titus, the Apostle Paul begins the letter with what I would call a, a strong charge. Uh, you could call it an encouragement. I, I, hope, I hope it would be encouraged. The word to encourage means to build up. I hope this built Titus up. But what it does is it's designed to prepare him for the task in front of him so that he would learn to be faithful even in the hard times. Maybe you're going through a hard time today, and I really appreciate Courtney's selection of, of songs today about Christ being able to break every chain. You may be going through a very difficult season right now, and uh, what God is asking you to do may seem to be too great. I hope that what we talk about today might help you deal with what God has put in front of you so that you can be faithful in the midst of it. Take your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking in Titus chapter 1, and we're going to look together at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Verses 1 through 4. And so, in this correspondence written from Paul, who was no longer on the island of Crete, to Titus, who he left on the island of Crete, Paul begins, Paul. Now, this is how correspondence worked in that day. You would put your name at the very beginning so the people knew who was speaking to them. So, when Titus unrolled this scroll, he would have saw, seen Paul's name at the beginning, so he knew what it was from. Paul, a servant of God 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now notice, it is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, which in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his own word through the preaching, which I, Paul, have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This greeting is actually considered to be a very expanded greeting for such a little book. A greeting about this size is in the book of Romans, but Romans is 16 chapters long. It's only three chapters. It's a very long greeting because Paul knows he needs to encourage and challenge Titus with the task in front of him. I'm going to pray with you and take just a moment to ask God's blessing upon his word and our understanding of it, and uh, may God give that. Let's pray together. Father, uh, before us is your word. Uh, and in the next few minutes, we have the potential for life change. Uh, in the next few minutes, we have the ability to, to understand, to be able to endure. In the next few minutes, we have the opportunity to hear your word. Open our ears to hear. In spirit of God, who brings illumination, illuminate our understanding, and then empower our faith. I pray these things, Father, for Jesus' sake and your glory. In Christ's name, Father. Amen. Amen. All righty. On May the 12th, May the 12th, 1962, a very aged uh, General Douglas MacArthur, 82 years old, has just accepted the Sylvanius Thayer Award. And as he received this award at West Point, he then addressed the cadets, the future leaders of the army, with the following words. Duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, what you will be. They are your rallying points to build courage when courage seems to fail. To regain faith when there seems to be little cause for faith. To create hope when hope becomes forlorn. Duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, cadets, what you can be, cadets, what you will be. Imagine being a cadet there that day. This is a five-star general, a man whose career spanned two world wars and the Korean conflict, a man who was revered as a success amidst all the horrors of warfare, a man who has come back to West Point where he had graduated 60 years prior. And here we have the old war horse trying to inspire the future leaders with the rallying call that summons courage, the moral code that fills with faith, the ultimate obligation that is designed to create hope and will see them through the rigors of war. That call, that code, that obligation was duty, honor, and country. What we hear today that this man said back in 1962 is in a very real way what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus. You see, MacArthur lived this for 60 years, and he's telling the young recruits, if you will live this, you will be successful in the mission. 
Paul, an aged apostle, a man who had weathered many storms, a man who had gone through the rigors of following Jesus Christ, basically tells his young protege Titus, the only way I could do this is because of duty. I am a servant of God. Often my life comes back to being doing the duty that I have been called to do, in spite of the fact I may not enjoy or like it. But not only duty, but honor. I have the calling of an apostle of Jesus Christ on my life. And the call of Christianity, the rallying call of Christianity isn't to country, but it is to the gospel, which Paul says, I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Duty, honor, the gospel. Titus, that has served me well as a follower of Jesus Christ. These same truths will serve you well on the island of Crete as you go through the hardships you will encounter. And friends, it has been preserved in the word for us today because the rallying call of Christianity has never changed. It is about duty, it is about honor, and it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to kind of unpack this to understand what Paul's talking about and see how it might apply to each one of us here today. Because quite frankly, these truths, when realized, can ultimately change every perspective, every situation we're in. So we're going to begin by looking at what Paul says, Paul, a servant of God. Now, all I can say is this, unless you have the HCSB version of the Bible, you say, what on earth is the HCSB? The HCSB is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. How many have the Holman Christian this morning? Got one, two, three. It's a good Southern Baptist rendition of the, of the Scriptures. It's an excellent version of the Bible. But the HCSB doesn't translate the word doulos, the Greek word doulos there, with the word servant, as all the other translations do. Rather, it translates it with the word slave. Paul, a slave of God. Now, that word bothers us terribly to think that somehow we are enslaved but let me explain. The footnote in, in the um, HCSB says this. The strong Greek word doulos, which underlies that word, cannot be accurately translated into English as servant or bondservant, as most of our translations do. The HCSB translators use the word slave, not out of an insensitivity to legitimate concerns of modern English speakers, but out of a commitment to accurately portray the brutal reality of the Roman Empire's inhumane institution of slavery, as well as the ownership called for by Christ. Let me say that last part one more time. As well as the ownership called for by Christ. You know, it is always the challenge of the writers of Scripture to, to give us word pictures or, or an understanding or a metaphor to help us appreciate our relationship with God. You know, God is wholly other. He's completely distinct from anything we understand or know. And yet God in his love reached out to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And so what does that relationship mean? How do we understand that relationship to work? And so, so the Bible writers are trying to find images. Jesus used the image of sheep. I am the shepherd, you are the sheep. How many like being called a sheep? Yeah, yeah, mostly you know, maybe a lamb. They're cute and cuddly, but not a sheep because they're kind of dumb, right? So, so that's one of the images. Uh, another one that Jesus gives is, you are my friends. How many like the imagery of friendship with Jesus? Yeah, we all like that one. That's cool. Um, we have another image that the Bible gives us of God being father and us being sons and daughters or the children of God. It, that, that, that's a kind of a way to understand how the relationship is meant to work. He's the father. We're the kids. But in the New Testament, the epistles, the letters uh, apart from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the most prevalent used term to describe the relationship between God and his people is the term doulos. It is the word slave. 
Now, again, that bothers a lot of us because we don't like that idea because we have all these terrible, and rightfully so, connections to slavery. We've seen the images. We have, we have relatives. We have all this stuff connected to it. We see it in other parts of the world today, and it's just wrong. It's negative. It's bad. But let me explain to you why they chose that imagery for the first century church and how I think it still relates to us. Um, so we had a kind of a snow day on Tuesday. Yeah, I think the, the county schools still had school, right? Am I right? And so everybody went to school. It was a nasty day, so they gave you two hours the next day that you didn't need to make it up to you. That's how that worked, right? Uh, so while we had that kind of day off on Tuesday, I snuggled up with a book called Slave by John MacArthur. Took some time to devour the whole of it. And in it, he does a very good job of explaining this term called doulos, how it was to be understood in the context of the first century, and how it's meant to be understood today. One of the things he said I thought was very helpful. And so let's consider this idea of, of slavery or being a slave. From the standpoint of the first century culture, this is the first century Mediterranean world that Rome dominated, slavery served as an apt picture of the believer's relationship to Christ. You see, it is one of complete submission and subjugation to the master. To be a slave was to be under complete authority of someone else. It meant rejecting personal autonomy and embracing the will of another. The concept required no great explanation because slavery was commonplace and had been for centuries. And so what we have is this. In the first, uh, first century Mediterranean world, they guesstimate about one quarter of the population were slaves. One quarter of the population. Now, when you get to the cities where Paul often established churches and wrote letters, whether it be Rome or Ephesus or Philippi or, or Corinth, in the cities, it was as much as two-thirds of the population were slaves. In fact, the gospel seemed to have a special affinity for those who are the poor, the downtrodden, and those who were in slavery. So much of the body of Christ were slaves. And so when somebody would come to Christ, the, the imagery of slavery became the easiest way for them to understand this relationship with God. You see, what has happened is this. You are a person who's under slavery to your master. Some are good, some are cruel. You may have worked in the house or you may have worked in the rural area. I don't know, but most of them were involved in some kind of slavery situation. What happened in Jesus is this. You have now been taken under the care of a new master. Someone who has purchased you by his own blood. And this master is good, and he is kind, and he is loving, and he is forgiving, and he is a master that you're going to love serving because he loves you so much. So, as the writers of Scripture will do, go back into your life in this world, serve your master, but realize there's a greater master you're serving, and that's the one you're called to honor. So this imagery of slavery was a very quick, easy understanding of what it meant for a slave to come to Jesus. Oh, I've got a new, a new master. I've got a new owner. And this one's good. And he loves me. But he, he deserves the greatest respect and honor. And so there's this, this idea in the first century. Uh, I like what uh, um, MacArthur quoted uh, another historian saying, the experience of enslavement was a perfect illustration for an ancient audience. Like a slave, the Christian convert experienced the violent psychological force of personal upheaval, the social dishonor of turning away from one's family and traditional culture, and the true alienation of losing one's whole past identity. When you're a slave and yanked out of your, your, your situation and taken into slavery, what happens is there's this huge emotional turmoil. And you lose all of your family and all of your friends and your traditional culture, and you're, you're alienated, and you no longer have a past. He said this, now in Christ, receiving from your new Lord Jesus, you got a new name. It's Christian. You're learning a new language. It's no longer those colorful four-letter words that you've been throwing around because that's what you do. No, you get new four-letter words like love and kind and care. You get a new language. Things are different. You have a new worldview. You're going to understand that your master controls it all. And you're forming new relationships in this thing called the body of Christ. I got a new group of people I hang out with. You know, this imagery, 
I think really suits well somebody who comes to Jesus later in life. You see, later in life, after we've kind of lived our lives and gotten our own ruts developed and people developed, when we meet Jesus Christ, there's a psychological transformation. I mean, it's an upheaval. Oh, my gosh. All these years I've wandered in the paths of sin, and all of a sudden somebody saves me. Then all of a sudden you're kind of, I got a new name. And all of a sudden you're looking around and saying, oh, I, I need new people over here because these people keep dragging me down on those old ruts. And you get new groups of people, and, and there's a new life being established. So I think even on that level, the terminology of slavery and the trauma that goes with being taken from one master and put under another master still applies to some degree for us. But let me just say this. Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan had it right. You see, Bob Dylan was right when he said, we all have to serve somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. I don't care where you come from, I don't care who you are or where you're going, you serve somebody. And the scriptures make it very clear that if you are not a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a servant or slave of the devil and of your own passions and desires in life. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6. So we're trying to personalize what Paul's saying about being under the servitude of Jesus Christ. And so in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, he says this, What then? Are we to sin, the idea is continue to live our own lives any way we so choose, because we're no longer under the law but under grace? What does he say? Okay, three of us got it. What's he say? One more time. Okay, in the original language, the Greek, it is the word ume. It is the strongest construction that can be made in that language to say, absolutely not, no way. We are not allowed under grace to live any way we want. In fact, just the opposite is true. So do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you all got to serve somebody. You are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin. Now, this is ourselves. This is doing our own thing. This is living our own life, living our own way, which leads to, what's the word? Yeah, it's eternal death. You see, true followers of Jesus follow Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus, it's saying you've already offered yourself up to another owner. And that owner is mean. He's nasty. I know personally. Or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then Paul says what he thinks of the people in Rome. He thinks well of them. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, your own life and living, have now become obedient to the heart, uh, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He's referring to the word of God. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Awesome. By the way, he ends up by saying, you're slaves of God. Same word that he used to introduce this section to Titus. Remember Paul, a slave of God. Can I just say to you, again, the whole concept of slavery is ugly. But I thank God for the day that I came under a new owner. As I look back in my life, and I was living my own life, and uh, I thought I was having my own way, when in fact my flesh and sin in the world were having their way with me, that when I came to know Jesus Christ and was placed under that mastery, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And as I look back over the years now, 30 years of being mastered by Jesus, I would not trade this servitude and slavery for anything. Say, Bill, you can go free. I am free. 
You can do anything you want. I want to do what he wants. But, 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 no, 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 I want him. Because he has proven to be the most gracious and merciful, loving and good master I could have ever dreamt of having. It's funny how this works, but Romans chapter 6, verse 22, there's a verse that comes after that, and it's Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Yes, come on, track with me, work with me here, we'll make this work, okay? So in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for many of us, oh, I know that verse, because we memorized that verse for the Romans road, kind of a memorization. So Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. What you earn when you live your own way is eternal destruction. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our master. To be a Lord is to be a master. You see, we use this verse out of context and we say, oh, it's a gift, it's a gift, it's free, it's free, just say yes. No, no, what you're saying yes to is you're saying yes to a new master in your life. It's by his grace, you can never earn it or deserve it, but it's by his grace. But you're coming under his leadership. You're going to become a slave of righteousness now in Jesus. So all that to say, all that to say, we have gone through this concept of being a slave. And all I can know to say is this. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So the natural result of having been set free from sin is to now be enslaved to God, to glorify Him with your life. What else could you want to do? It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I'll tack that on in a few minutes. All these thoughts running through my mind right now. Okay. So, Titus, I, Paul, am a slave of God. I have learned my duty well. I am his servant. I don't do what I want to do. And so, too, you need to learn this, Titus. You have been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You know, um, there's a, a famous poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson called The Charge of the Light Brigade. And in that poem, there are these words, ours is not to question why, but to do and to die. You see, ultimately, that's what it means to follow Jesus. He doesn't give you all the answers. He won't tell you everything you want to know. He won't always put you in the place you want to be. But ultimately, what he is saying is this, I'm your master, love me and trust me, because I would only do what's best for you. Right now, some of you are in tough spots, in difficult places. And it could be because of your own sinful choices. His grace is there to deal with that. But some of you are in tough places, and it's where he wants you. And he wants you to endure. He wants you to be under orders. He wants you to be um, somebody who understands your duty to serve him as a slave would his master. So we have this opening statement from Paul. Titus, this is your duty Do not run from it. Secondly, he not only talks about the idea of duty, but he talks about the idea of honor. Honor. What a great word that is, honor. You see, we are, if you will, sent ones, representatives on behalf of Jesus Christ our Lord to a lost and a dying world. Now, when Paul calls himself an apostle here, uh, when he uses the term apostle, Uh, What he is basically doing is he is giving us both the technical and there is a general term in the Bible for this. The word apostle, again, means sent one. Technically, there are what we, we would call the big A apostles. Big A sent ones. There were only 12 of these guys. And these were the original followers of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ personally called his disciples, the 12, to himself, he called them, they followed him, they were eyewitnesses of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And then he told them, go. So we have the original 12. But then the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he was one who was kind of born late. And Jesus came along after the resurrection and confronted Paul. Paul got up and then he he gave Paul the designation of basically being a sent one or apostle to the Gentiles. So when we use the term apostle today, From the scriptural viewpoint of capital A Apostle, I want you to understand that word only applies to 12 men who followed Jesus and the Apostle Paul. 
It really doesn't apply to anyone else, especially today, because in order to be a big A apostle, you had to have been called by Jesus, walked with Jesus, and I witnessed to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So there aren't any today. Does that make sense? Because I don't know that anybody's doing that today. So, but there is this other term. The technical term is capital A apostle, but the general term is the idea of being sent. Being sent. And so a little a, if you will, could be applied to all believers in Jesus Christ. We are not capital A sent ones, but we are little a sent ones. Uh, I believe the Great Commission kind of begins this way. And you are to stop. You are to stay. No, wait a minute, I'm, I'm getting there. You are to Go, yes, the Great Commission is go and preach the gospel to every creature. Go and make disciples of every nation. So in a rare, real way, we are sent ones. We are told to go, not capital A, but little a. And as such, we are representatives, ambassadors for Jesus Christ on this earth today. Paul bore the term of an apostle And it made a difference in his life because he knew everywhere he went, everything he did, it would ultimately fall back on Christ. So he was very careful how he chose to live his life. But the same thing is very much true of us. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How many are in Christ here this morning? All right, I got good news for you. You're a new creation, amen? All things are done away with. Behold, all things are becoming new. Amen? I can't tell you how good that news is. But along with that good news of being redeemed by the Son of, the, uh, Son of God, the, the Lamb of God, comes this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice this. He gave who? Who? Who's us? Us is us. Okay, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions or trespasses against them. And he entrusted to who? Us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are who? Congratulations. Now, I don't know what the government pay grade is for that, but I think it's pretty good. And I, this much I know, Jesus is good for it, so you'll get it later, but not right now. But this is, this is what the Bible teaches. There's capital A apostles, and there's only a handful of those guys, two handfuls of those guys. But the rest of us are sent ones. We are representatives of Jesus Christ, ambassadors for Christ. You know, in the military, uh, they have this thing called, would you get that, please? I'm sorry. In the military, oh, say hi from us. <laughs> In the military, uh, they have this thing called a code of honor, uh, or a, a, a code of conduct. Code of conduct, thank you. And the code of conduct tells you how you are to represent the military while you have your uniform on, primarily, actually all the time, but especially when you're in uniform. Because then people can identify your attitude and in, in your actions directly back to the military, and which goes right directly back to the United States, which goes right back to the way we live our lives. And so in a very real way, that code of conduct is incumbent upon every person who puts on the uniform. Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a code of conduct. Because every single thing we do as Jesus' followers ultimately goes back upon our Savior. What we say, how we say it. What we do, where we go, and yes, even what we post ultimately reflects back on the person of Jesus Christ. Paul took very seriously being an apostle, and he made sure that his life was limited in ways so as not to besmirch Jesus through his life. And so in a real way, Titus, you're not only a slave of God, that's your duty. Your honor, your honor is to be a sent one, an ambassador for Jesus. I'm putting you on the island of Crete, and I want you now to be careful of your life and lifestyle because you're representing him. And so too for us, we represent Jesus Christ. Somebody came up to me right after the first service and said this, you know, Pastor Bill, I was in a store the other day, and there was a knockdown, drag-out fight going on in the back. 
an employer with a couple of employees, and the employees were yelling at each other, and the employer was yelling back at them. And she goes, I was witnessing this whole thing. It was really embarrassing. And uh, she goes, and then all of a sudden, one of the ladies yelled out, I'm a Christian, and I don't lie. <laughs> and I thought to myself, yeah, thanks. Like, we needed that. Don't say that. Because the way you were carrying on and the way you were defending yourself by being angry and mean, you just showed up Jesus. How we carry ourselves, what we say matters greatly. Titus, be careful to honor the one who's honored you. And the same is true for us. All right, duty. Oop. Colossians 1.10 says this, that you may live your life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Duty, honor, and the gospel. I, the Apostle Paul, have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior with the message of the gospel. Now let's go back here and read it. The message of the gospel is for the sake of the faith of God's who? You see, in eternity past, God has chosen, selected, elected people to be his children. When the proclamation of the gospel goes forward, faith is generated and the elect gets saved. But they don't just come to Christ. Now, it's, part of the gospel is their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, that they will come into a lifestyle that accords with being truly in relationship with God. And then they have the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies. Now, what do we know about Cretans? They always lie. What do we know about God? He never lies. Okay, we got that down. He promised before the ages began, at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching, which I, the Apostle Paul, had been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So Paul is saying this, I have been entrusted with the gospel, and therefore I must share the gospel. Titus, you are a slave of God. You have been given the honor of representing him. Now take the gospel everywhere you go and do it. Do it. So as we uh, have this last mention here, um, duty, honor, and the gospel, I, I just want to say that we, we have been entrusted with the message of God's grace. And we have been commanded to share it with others. Go. 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 And so I just want to take a moment and talk about what the message of God's grace is. Because I think that's important. If we're going to be held accountable for this one of these days of being faithful to actually handle it well, I think it's important that we know what we're handling. Because we will be held accountable. The message of God's grace is that message you believed and then renounced your former life for. That message of God's grace is His work in your heart and in your life giving you a personal witness of this message that is all yours to be able to be shared with others. So the message of God's grace is something that every single one of us, if we really belong to Christ, have in personal experience. Let me explain what I mean. The message of the gospel of grace uh, is clarified in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. You know, if you're going to circle a part of Titus, circle this section, because this section is, is kind of the heartbeat uh, of what, a lot of what's going on in Titus. But I want you to notice... He begins by talking about our lives before we knew Jesus Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish. Now, Paul puts himself in here. You know, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our various passions and pleasures. And boy, I know what that means. Passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. So as he prepares to share what the gospel is, what he is saying is, this is my life before I met Jesus Christ. Now, for some of us who grew up in the church, this will be brief and unremarkable for you. Yeah, I grew up, and in second grade, I stole a candy bar, and then I met Jesus. I feel so great, you know. 
For others of us who didn't meet Jesus until later in life, uh, our before we met Jesus part of the story is long and ugly, or at least it can be. But it begins with my life before I met Jesus. But then it moves into meeting Jesus. But when? Notice there's a time frame here. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Amen? Say amen. Oh, my goodness. If you have not been saved by the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, you don't know what we're talking about. It's the most wonderful thing that ever happens. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We never earned it. But according to his own mercy, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, by the washing and regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, declared righteous before God the Father through the work of Jesus on the cross, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what we have is my life before Jesus meeting Jesus, and then my life after Jesus. Verse 8 says, saying, this saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? This is a new life. This is a different way of living. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So again, God has given you this message to share with others. It was a time where you didn't have him. Or know him. If you grew up in the church, that time's a little harder to figure out. I get that. My wife grew up in the church. My son grew up in the church. My daughter grew up in the church. But they can all kind of go back to a time where they made that, that understanding. So, um, but there was a time before you met Jesus. And then, this, this just has to be said, there is a specific time where you will meet Jesus. Let me, let me just put it this way. There is a time in our lives where we have to look back upon and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Not long ago, a young man came into my office. He grew up in the church. He could expouse all kinds of Bible verses to you, and he could tell you all kinds of Bible truths. He got down on his hands and knees in my office, and he wept like a baby. He repented of his life, and he has found new life in Jesus. I'm saying this because salvation is not something that comes on you like osmosis. It's a decision. It's a, it's a choice to follow Jesus. It is. The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step, but you have to take the first step. The journey of being a disciple of Jesus Christ begins with the first step, but you've got to make a decision to make that step. So maybe you've got this foggy thinking way back when you were a kid that something happened, but your life doesn't show any real transformation. It could be you're leaning into something that never happened. What I'm saying to you is this. That young man, beautiful man, I would have told you that I think he might have been saved before this, but when he got down on his knees and poured out his heart with bitter tears and gave his heart and life over to Jesus Christ, no matter what, he's a new man. I mean, he's a new man. Tra radically transformed. So if I'm talking wah, 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 wah to you, if you're not making any sense of what I'm talking about, maybe you need to get saved. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Because there should be a time when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared to you and you were saved. And then knowing him changes everything. Being mastered by him and casting off the unfruitful works of the flesh, we now are slaves to righteousness, slaves of God. Titus, it's your duty, it's your honor, and it's about the gospel. Titus, you can't fail. I won't let you give up. You will not fail because there's too much at stake. 
You know, um, last week I had a, a young man come and speak for me. Uh, his name is Nathan Bryant. How many of you were here last week when you heard Nathan speak? Nathan shared with you the idea, and I, I love this idea, and I embrace this idea, that, that the church as a whole has all the gifts and abilities to ultimately bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ. I agree with that. I agree with that. The goal is to connect people, ask them to journey with us, and in that process they come to meet Jesus. We've had two people who have done that just recently. They've been sitting with us and talking and learning and hearing, and then finally they've, they've just said, hey, I, I need Jesus. And so we've led them you know, through a study to meet Jesus, an evangelistic study, and they've, they've come to Christ. That's what these baptisms are about coming up. So this is happening. So it is about being faithful with the gospel. And we try here at Grace Church to make that as easy as we can for everyone. And that, my friends, is what the entire Easter season is all about we are going to use this movie, Exploring the Evidence for Yourself, The Case for Christ. We're going to use this movie as a backdrop for our preaching series. Week one on Palm Sunday, we'll be investigating the case for Christ. Uh, Easter Sunday, we'll be exploring the evidence for Christ, embracing the truth of Christ. And then we will conclude on April the 30th, the fourth week of this series, called Explaining the Good News of Christ. Somebody told me the other day, they said, I've seen that movie. I've seen that movie. And years ago, yes, uh, Lee Strobel came out along with Mark Middleberg and put on something called The Case for Christ. It was his personal testimony and kind of sharing it with a group of people. Actually, it was a woman in my, my a church that I used to pastor who got saved that night. She was Indian and uh, finally cast off Hinduism and embraced Jesus that night. So I remember that night very well. But I just want to say, you haven't seen this movie. If somebody wanted to do an investigation into Christianity, where would you start? If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, it's a house of cards. You sure you want to give me that loaded gun? I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to pull the trigger. I've spent my entire career as a journalist uncovering the truth. Until the day my wife presented me with the biggest story of my life. I'm not going to lose my wife and my kids to something that I can't even reason with. And what happened next changed me forever. How can we even talk about historical evidence for the resurrection? The Gospels are filled with contradictions. The empty tomb is based on evidence. And isn't evidence your trade? We all bet our lives on something. The question is, what's it going to be? As much as I would like to help out a fellow skeptic, what you're proposing is impossible. Could Jesus survive being spiked to the cross? There is no evidence of anyone ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Just because I write something down and I bury it in the dirt, it doesn't make it true. What I felt was something more real than anything I've ever felt in my life. I'm praying for you. Do you really want to know the truth or is your mind already made up? Stop blaming me and the church and God and do your job. ever proven if the shroud is the actual burial cloth of the Christ. But whenever someone looks in those eyes for the first time, suddenly becomes a real person. Nope, you haven't seen this one yet. It comes out uh, April the 7th, uh, but we're actually looking to secure a local movie theater on Good Friday. Uh, and and get at least a 100-seat theater and lock it down is Grace Church. Uh, the plan is to use that environment to have our church. We have 100 tickets we're planning on, on having, and so the goal is we will sell 75 of those tickets to anybody here who wants to go. Ten bucks a head, not a problem. 25 of those tickets are reserved for people who are unchurched. 25 of those tickets are reserved for people who may have named the name of Jesus in the past, but they're not walking with him. They used to maybe go somewhere, but they don't go anywhere now, whether it's family or friends or a coworker or a neighbor. We want you to invite them to this event as well. It will be a great night. My understanding is if we secure the theater, we can do anything we want in there. 
No, we won't lock people in, uh, but uh, we can maybe have a little bit of worship included and not have to have that long string of trailers that they always show at the beginning. And so we're going to talk with them about what this means. We won't fully know until about a week before it comes out as to which theater it will be. But, but be praying about who you're going to invite. See, this is really not about Grace Church having a good time at the movies. We can have a good time here. Uh, the goal is, is to help people meet Jesus. And so to be faithful with the gospel is to connect people who need Jesus to something like this so that we can use the body to help them meet Jesus Christ. And then we're going to have this weird thing called the helicopter egg drop. Yes, what we're going to do is these people, I've already secured the helicopter. Uh, I don't know how big it's going to be or anything, but uh, they're going to come a week before the egg drop. They're going to secure the property, give a, a layout of plat for safety's sake. They're going to fly in that day. We're going to load 6,000 eggs into the helicopter. Uh, they will go up and come over the soccer field. Now, this is the way it will work. People will arrive by 10, have a lot of fun. We're going to do face painting and cool stuff and all kinds of cool things. And then when we get closer to 11, we're going to start a countdown. We're going to pull all the kids off the field and behind a rope. The little ones will be there with their parents, and they'll be in the area off to the right uh, out here where all the swing sets are, so the little ones won't get trampled in the stampede. So, But over here on the big field, it's elementary and younger, and we'll make the cutoff somewhere for the little ones in the field here, and we're going to fly over and drop 6,000 eggs, and then we're going to say, go get them. And I guarantee they'll be all gone in 10 minutes. <laughs> Boom! But the goal is to invite people, have a good time, let's laugh, and 6,000 eggs, you know, 4,000 uh, 4, are candy, 2,000 are little toys and trinkets. We're thinking about throwing some extra special eggs out there as well, and who knows, maybe we'll give away a bike or a game system or a, a, a year's food at Chick-fil-A. Oh, you're going to be there, aren't you? <laughs> no. But actually, we need people to go in the helicopter. Do we have any volunteers? Oh, I thought we might have a few. Awesome. So we're going to need probably two people in the helicopter as well. So all this is coming up, but all this is designed for one purpose. For people to meet Jesus. That's what this is all about. I'm just going to close with these words and we're done. I know it's late. I say that every week. Why do we even bother to say it anymore? Duty, honor, country. Those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, what you will be. Duty honor, and the gospel, those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be, and dear child of God, what you will be. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I am humbled that the God of the universe would choose somebody like me to be in his family. And I am so grateful for being mastered by Jesus. And I just long for more of my life to be fully yours. I love what you do in and through me when I walk in obedience. I just pray for those who are here this morning, Father, maybe the idea of being mastered by Jesus is new. Maybe the idea of, of being a representative of Christ is new. Maybe the idea that we're responsible for the gospel is new. I don't know. But my prayer, Father, is that we would take this truth today, then the Holy Spirit would give us understanding, and that we will become these people for Jesus' sake. And all God's people said, God bless you. God bless you.